Bible, uh, go ahead and open to uh, Ecclesiastes <clears throat> chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 10 and we're going to go through uh, chapter 7 verse 14. If you've been with us uh, for any of our time in Ecclesiastes, you you probably know that there's a little bit of a kind of a depressing tone <laughs> to the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been working hard to try to not make this depressing, uh, but part of the depressing nature of Ecclesiastes is that Solomon is is looking at what hope do we have in life apart from knowing God, and he's come up empty-handed. There's no hope. Uh, in this life apart from God. And we're going to hear kind of more of that uh, in our text today. Um, fortunately, the story doesn't end with with us not knowing God. Solomon comes to this great conclusion uh, in, in his writing is that, that, that the end of all things is just that we, we should fear God and obey his commandments because the life that he gives us to live is designed to be lived in the fear of him and in obedience to him. And when we go outside of those things, when we color outside the lines, so to speak, uh, life just doesn't go all that well. Um, and we're, we're really uh, undertaking an exercise in futility and trying to live life apart from God, living in God's world, but not living according to God's ways. And, and so, so that's kind of the underly, an underlying message that we see through this. But as we pick up in chapter 6, verse 10... He says this, he says, whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what advantage is it to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And so Solomon starts out by basically telling us that whatever has come to be has already been named. And he's referencing God, that God is in control of everything and that God has this plan that's unfolding. And there's nothing that we can do to thwart or alter the plan of God. It's already known what man is and he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Maybe a better way to say that is he's not able to dispute with the one stronger than him. Again, a reference to God that we can't argue with God, that we can't do anything uh, to change God's mind, to change God's plan, to alter his purposes, yet we try. We, we try and we try and we try and we try. Um, something I think about a lot, and I've thought about this a lot, for a long time, over many, many years. Like, how, how do you pray to the God that controls everything? How do you pray to the God that has created everything? And oftentimes, my prayers consist of, God, here's my, like, if there's a suggestion box, this is what I would put in it. Here's how to run the world better. Do this, change this, fix that. Don't do this, don't let that happen. Like, th- those are my prayers. Basically telling God how he can do his job better. And, and on it, like, I have some pretty good ideas. <laughs> but... No, they're, they're not that good, all right? <laughs> I, I like to think that my ideas are pretty good. And, and that's oftentimes how I pray. And Solomon is telling us that we're not able to dispute with the one who's stronger than us. In other words, my ideas are not better than his. Right? My ideas of how to run the universe better are not better than God's, despite what I may think from time to time. The more words, the more vanity. Sometimes I pray a lot with my suggestions to God. Even now, like I'm here telling you this, and like I'm probably going to go home today and I'm going to tell God how he can do something better, right? It's just kind of the way that, that we are. It's the way that we roll. We treat God sometimes as if he's just our genie in a bottle, right? I'm going to rub the lamp just the right way and, and I get my wishes, right? But then when our wishes don't come true, when we don't get what we ask for, then we kind of get mad, don't we? And we question, well, God, why didn't you come through for me on this? Why didn't you do what I asked you to do? 
And we forget that he's stronger than us. He's bigger than us. He knows more than us. He created us. He created everything around us. And the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that he's the one that holds everything together. He's the one that makes the universe run the way that the universe is supposed to run, not you and not me. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life. That's not a depressing thought, is it? Right? Some of us have been on this world, in this earth for a long time. And Solomon tells us, however long you're alive on this earth, it's just a few days. It's a few days. If you get you know, 60 years, 70 years, 80, maybe 90, or you're lucky enough to, to reach 100, it's a few days in the grand scope of eternity. And when we try to live that life, no matter how long and no matter how full it is, we try to live that life apart from God. It's vain. It's an exercise in futility. Matter of fact, it passes like a shadow, he tells us. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Back in chapter 3, I had the opportunity to preach that chapter, and Solomon talks about how mankind is not a whole lot different than the animals in some respects. Right? We breathe the same air, and when we die, we return to the same dust. Right? The advantage that man has is that we have a capacity given to us by God to know him that the animals don't have. But again, life apart from God, there's not a whole lot of difference between man and animals because we breathe the same air, we die and we return to the same dust and we get buried. And who knows what happens after that apart from God. So not a lot of hope here in this, but I want to try to bring some hope to kind of this depressing thought. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 25. The apostle Paul says this, he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And here the Apostle Paul tells us definitively, we're not smarter, we're not stronger than God. We're not going to outwit him. He's not our genie in a bottle to grant our every wish. As a matter of fact, it was through what we would consider foolishness, what we would consider folly, that God has chosen to make known to mankind who he is and what he's done. Matter of fact, he says the world did not know God through wisdom. The author A.W. Tozer in one of his books talks about that that we can't make this intellectual uh, climb to find out who God is. God didn't design it that way. And that's not to say that, that, that knowledge is worthless. It's not. God has given us a capacity for that that's useful and purposeful. But we don't know God purely on an intellectual level, right? We can't convince anybody purely on an intellectual level of who God is and what he's done for us. The Bible tells us that the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who believe. And so at the end of the day, our our problem is not that we don't know enough or that we can't know enough. Our problem is a spiritual problem. And we come to know God on a spiritual basis, not purely on an intellectual basis. And Paul is telling us here, the world did not know God through wisdom because it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And what is it that we preach? We preach Christ crucified. What is it that we preach? We preach that that God stepped into human flesh and stepped into human time and history as we know it. And how is it that, that God came to be on this earth? 
He didn't come riding a horse with a sword and a shield, right? That day will come. But he came to earth, how? As a baby. He came to earth in humility and in in weakness, in human weakness. And he came in, in the most unimaginable, ironic way. Like we would not write that story. The savior of mankind would show up on the scene as a baby who needed to be fed and changed. We wouldn't write that story because it's kind of a ridiculous story. The God of the universe had a mom who had to take care of him and and probably had to help him through his life as he grew up. The God of the universe got hungry and got tired, just like you and I get hungry and and get tired, right? Not a story that we would would write, but the folly of that message is that, that God became like us. God stepped down and became like us, and he came to love those who were unlovely. He came to suffer at the hands of those he created. He came so that he could take on my sin and your sin and all the sin of of humanity throughout the course of time and history so that the wrath of the Father could be satisfied, so that those who would believe in him would not have to suffer the just and due penalty for their sin. That's a ridiculous story, isn't it? Unless, of course, you believe it to be true. Then it's not so ridiculous. That's the folly of what we preach. The Jews, Paul says, demand signs. The Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which doesn't fit really either of those categories in a neat and tidy sort of a way. As a matter of fact, Paul says it's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. But for those of us who are called, whether Jew or Greek, that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so Solomon talks about that we're not bigger than God. We're not stronger than God. We're not smarter than God. We can't outdo God. And if you don't know God, if you haven't come to know God through Christ, then you have a vain life that just passes like a shadow. And you don't have any hope in this life. A couple of chapters back, Solomon says the best hope that we can have as human beings apart from knowing God is that maybe we have a job that we like. Enjoy it as best as you can and eat and drink as much as you can until your time is done, right? Until this vain life that passes like a shadow is over. That's not a whole lot of great hope, is it? Like if we really enjoyed our jobs, they would be called hobbies. But it's not. It's called a job because there's this element of like the daily grind, Right? We set the alarm and we get up day in and day out and we go work. And it's all a means to an end right? so that we can have houses and so that we can eat and so that we can have transportation and, and have our basic needs covered right? and those kinds of things. But Solomon says that's the best hope that you have apart from knowing God. Apart from buying into this foolish message and knowing God, we don't have a whole lot of hope. So we see the power of God at work in the folly of the message. Going into chapter 7, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, here we see some irony. Solomon says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This 
is also vanity. And the depressing hits just keep coming, don't they? He has a series of ironic statements. A good name is better than precious ointment. In other words, you can look good, you can feel good, you can smell good, but if you don't have a good name, if you don't have a good reputation uh, among outsiders, what's it all about? The day of death is better than the day of birth. And what I, what I don't think Solomon is advocating here for is that, that, that death certainly is better than birth. Like we celebrate people's lives when they die and we celebrate uh, new birth. But he goes on to say that the house of mo- it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. In other words, all man, we're all going to die. We all have an expiration date uh, that's coming. And he says that the living will lay it to heart. One commentary I read, speaking of these verses, said that that death is a preacher. And I think this is kind of what Solomon might be getting at here. Death is a preacher, right? We we celebrate lives when they come to an end. We celebrate lives when they come to a beginning. But but in the maternity ward, we're not necessarily, most of us, probably taking stock of our life. The maternity ward, we're probably not thinking about our own mortality or our expiration date. But at funerals, at memorial services, we tend to think about those things, don't we? We tend to think about our own lives and and how they've been lived as we celebrate the life of of whoever we're celebrating. One particular instance comes to mind for me years ago. uh, We had a friend, uh, a friend of our family, his name was Dave. And Dave was probably one of the most humble, kind, and generous people I've ever had the privilege to know. Uh, Everybody that knew Dave would say those things about him. Nobody had a bad thing to say about Dave. And one day he, he tragically died. <clears throat> he, uh, he ran a hot dog stand out in front of a Home Depot down in Redding, California. And, you know, he, he wasn't rolling in the dough running a hot dog stand out in Redding, California. Uh, but he also catered on the side. And, and to this day, like, best tri-tip I've ever had was Dave's tri-tip. Just amazing. Um, and he was just was so generous in his life. And one day he had a stroke uh, out in front of Home Depot. One of the young kids that worked at Home Depot noticed he was slurring his speech. And so they rushed him to the hospital thinking something was wrong. And he had a stroke and seemed like he recovered from it. But a couple of days after being home from the hospital, he just passed out one day and, and that was it. His, his expiration date was there. And just a real tragedy. He wasn't a very old guy. I want to maybe in his early 50s, if I remember right. Uh, so just a tragic death and had, had a couple of boys, teenage boys that he left behind and a wife. And um, I'll never forget Dave's memorial service. Home Depot that day closed down to a skeleton crew, which probably was a feat in and of itself that it would do this so that all these kind of young college-age kids that work there could come to Dave's memorial service. And so this church, this little church building we were in, was just packed with people. Um, very, I mean, it just was uncomfortable. There were so many people there, shoulder to shoulder. And as they do often at memorial services, they gave an open mic time where people could come up and share their memories of Dave. And to this day, I've never seen anything like this before. Dozens of these young kids that worked at Home Depot took their turn coming up to the mic. One kid comes up to the mic and says, my transmission blew up one day in the parking lot, and the next day Dave gave me money to get a transmission in my car. And when I got on my feet and was able to pay him back, he wouldn't let me pay him back. Another kid got up and said, Dave paid for my community college. He wouldn't let me pay him back. Another kid got up and said, you know, I was going through a really rough time, and you know, Dave fed me for a couple of weeks from his hot dog stand. He wouldn't let me pay him back. And just for an hour, a solid hour, maybe even a little longer, testimony after testimony went on about just Dave's generosity. Even his family didn't even have any idea. I mean, he was known as a generous guy, but it's not like he went home at the end of the night and said, hey, honey, guess what I did today? He didn't do that. 
He just quietly and humbly helped people that needed help. And that day, like, death was a preacher to me that day. Death, even this was probably 15 years ago, his death still preaches to me today because I'll never forget that. It was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. His memorial was, was a legacy of a life lived unto Christ. His life preached to people. Many many of these young kids, as far as I know, didn't, didn't know Christ at his funeral, not, not followers, right? And they were preached to at his funeral. I think this is what Solomon might be getting at here, something like this, that the day of death is better than the day of birth because death preaches to us or can preach to us. Maybe it doesn't always, but it can and so as we go to the day of death and as we celebrate lives lived, that, that maybe we would consider God. Maybe as we consider our own mortality and our own expiration, that we would consider God. And, and we're probably more apt to consider God on the day of death than we are on the day of birth, right? He goes on to say that sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. How, how would we know gladness if we didn't know sorrow? Right? If we didn't have both sides of this coin, how would we know really either one? And he says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is, is in the house of mirth or the house of, of laughter, the house of feasting. If life always went our way, if it was always fun, if everything happened that we wanted to see happen all of the time, and we didn't have kind of what we would consider to be the negative things like sorrow and sadness and mourning, how would our gladness be so glad, right, if there wasn't anything to kind of counter it? We have a hard time as it is coming to know God in this life. How much harder would it be if, if all we ever did was feast? If we were all happy all of the time, if everything went our way, how, how difficult would it be for us to consider God? What need would we have for God if things always went our way? Right? I'm, I'm not thankful necessarily for the difficulties that come in this life, but, but, but I know that in the difficulties, those are the times that I look to God far more so than in the absence of them. I don't as often on the good days say, thank you, God, for a good day. Right? Sometimes I think to do that. But, but on the bad days, like I'm really quick to turn to God in the bad days. And again, God, here's my suggestion list of how my day could be better or my week could be better. Right? I'm really quick to do that. You probably are too. I think that's what Solomon's getting at when he says, better is it to be sad and to mourn than it is to feast all of the time because those are the things that cause us to turn to God. And maybe, just maybe, God has designed it, at least in part, to be that way. That in our difficulties, in our hardships, that we would turn to him. Right? And how thankful are you that, that we can turn to him in our difficulties? I often think in my difficulties, I, I came to faith at a young age and, and grew up in the church, and, and I, don't, I don't know what it is to face difficulties in life apart from God, and I'm thankful for that. I really am thankful for that. But, but I, like I didn't come to faith at a later age and had kind of some difficulties to face not knowing God. So, so I, I just don't know what it is to not turn to God in my difficulties, and that's a grace of God in my life. I can't, I can't imagine. I absolutely can't imagine. And so Solomon is telling us, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad because we turn to God in those moments.
He goes on to say that it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Nobody likes to be rebuked, right? Nobody goes to somebody else and says, hey, will you rebuke me? Right? Sometimes we might go to somebody and say, hey, I'm having a hard day. Can you give me some encouragement? Right? But we, we don't go to our friends and people close to us or people that we look up to and say, give me a good rebuke. I just, I need it right now. We would be silly to do that, wouldn't we? But Solomon is telling us it's better to hear the rebuke from the wise than to hear the song of fools. Because the song of fools, that doesn't do anything for us. But the rebuke from the wise, and, and what Solomon is talking about here is, is the godly wise. To hear a rebuke from the godly wise, it, it matters in our life, even if in the moment we don't want to hear it. And have you ever had those moments where maybe you get this rebuke from, from the godly wise? Maybe you get upset in the moment, and then later you think about it and you realize, I really needed to hear that. It wasn't pleasant. It wasn't comfortable. I didn't want to hear it, but, but I needed to hear it. That's a gift from God, that we have that in our lives, that we can do that for one another. And I would ask us all to consider, maybe we need to rebuke one another a little bit more. And I'm not just saying, going around pointing the finger, you, 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 right? right? We can do that. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. Right? Like, I think we could, in wisdom and in love, bring rebuke to one another in a godly, gracious way. Because I can stand up here and say, like, I know that I need this. And then, like, if you come rebuke me, I'm probably going to fight you on it, just like you would me. But God has given us that grace for each other that, that the rebuke of the wise, it matters. It matters. He says, that for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. And if you think about if you ever started a campfire, Right, and you chop up the kindling and you put it in. You, you build your fire. Like kindling doesn't last long, does it? Crackles a little bit and, and it's gone. This is the song of fools. This is the the constant like just build me up, build me up. Say say good things to me. Don't ever say anything negative to me. Right? We live in a world right now who would say that the most loving thing that we can do for each other is not to say anything negative. We live in a world now that says the most loving thing is to say you have your truth and I have mine. We live in a world that, that says that there is no objective truth. It's all subjective. And in order to be loving, we have to accept that. In order to be loving, we can't say that certain things are wrong because the world would say that's unloving. And Solomon would say, like, that's the song of fools. It's vanity. Like the kindling, like that's just going to disappear one day and we're going to be face-to-face with our Creator and one day realize, oh, that there were some things that were wrong. Right, ways that we're, that we're living now. The Bible says that there's going to be a day that comes where every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. And there will be no mistake who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And for some of us, that day is going to be pleasant because it's the day that we long for. For others, for those who don't follow Christ, that day is not going to be so pleasant because it's going to, they'll be forced to their knees and they'll be forced to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so again, we, we probably could do better, all of us, in this idea of loving and gracious rebukes, especially among brothers and sisters, right? I don't, I don't think Solomon is saying, like, go out in the street and just rebuke the world to its face, although m- maybe some of that needs to happen too. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 to 12, Jesus has a series of ironic statements as well. And I think these are maybe a little more hopeful than Solomon's ironic statements. 
Matthew 5, 2 says that Jesus opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So so this series of ironic statements is basically, if all of the things that you don't want to happen in life happen to you as a Christian, then you're blessed. Good for you. Blessed are the poor in spirit for those, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Our our society doesn't place a great value on being poor, does it? Our our society places a value on on wealth and, and riches. But Jesus says, if you're poor in spirit, in other words, understanding that, that spiritually you don't have anything apart from him, then yours will be the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. What, what, what great sadness would it be if, if we mourned and had no hope of comfort? That, that would be unimaginable. If we had no hope of comfort, but for those who follow Christ, we know that that we will be comforted. There's going to come a day, according to Revelation, where all the tears are going to be wiped away. Death and sadness will be no more. And we have a hard time imagining that because our life is full of, of death and sadness. Right? You guys know about me. I'm kind of a news junkie and, and, and I read a lot of headlines and there's just a lot of just bad things happening in the world. That's probably always been true, but... I think I pay attention to it more now at this stage of my life than I probably ever have before. Right When I was a kid, I didn't really care or was aware of the bad things happening in the world. But today I'm very aware there's, there's some bad things that happen in this world. And for those who don't know Christ, they don't have a whole lot of hope to be comforted for some of the real tragic things that happen. But for those of us that know Christ, in our mourning, we have hope that he'll bring comfort to us. Ultimately, one day, the greatest comfort that we can ever imagine. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If you go down to Barnes & Noble and you look for a book on meekness, you're probably not going to find it. There's all kinds of books on being strong. There's all kinds of books on how to be assertive, right? how, how to kind of make your own destiny. Like You'll find those kinds of books, and they fly off of the shelves. Nobody's writing a book on the value of meekness. I used to have a coworker years ago who would sign off on all of his phone calls, not by saying, have a great day, right? That's kind of a common thing. Hey, have a nice day. He would say, make it a great day. In other words, like he's like, be in control. Be, and you'll find all kinds of books about that too, how to be in control, right? Make it a great day. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are not in control. Blessed are those who are soft in ways that society doesn't value, right? Maybe even like blessed are the doormats we might say, because they'll inherit the earth, right? We're taught that, that the strong will, will take the assertive, will be able to kind of create their own destiny and you know, create wealth and success and all these things. But Jesus says it's the meek that will ultimately inherit the earth, right? You, you will never be successful enough that you can inherit the earth. 
right? I don't care how many of those books that you read. You're, you're not going to be so successful that you own the earth. But it's the meek that will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Right? We, we do here monthly food distribution, both at, at Sun River and, and Lapine, because people are hungry. Right? I work a little bit in the nonprofit world, and I know that like, there's just not enough food to go around. No matter how much food that, that we give out across our region and our state, like, it's just not enough because people aren't able to provide for themselves and people are, are hungry. And Jesus isn't talking necessarily about physical food here, but as much as we hunger for food, there's a greater hunger that, that we need as Christians, and it's for righteousness. Right? Sometimes I eat when I'm not even hungry just because I'm trying to preempt my hunger. Right? I do that. You probably do the same thing. I'm a snacker extraordinaire because I don't want to be hungry. I don't want to get to the point where it's like, I got to eat now. I don't want to get there. Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness in the same way that we hunger and thirst for food? All right, food, food is a necessity. You can only go so long without eating and drinking before you know your expir- expiration date will be here. But as much as we need food, we, we need righteousness more than we need food. And we need a righteousness not that we can produce in and of ourselves. We need a righteousness that comes from outside of us. Do we hunger and thirst for that? Because if we do, Jesus says that that's, that's where you'll find satisfaction. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness and you find it in Christ. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Again, you go to Barnes & Noble, you're probably not going to find a whole lot of books on how to be a merciful human being. Because they don't write those books. Those books don't fly off of the shelf. Our society doesn't value mercy a whole lot. right? We're, we're an eye for an eye. Or maybe two eyes for an eye so I don't have to deal with you again. That's kind of the way that we roll. But Jesus said, blessed are those who show mercy because you will receive mercy. It's kind of like the, the parable that Jesus tells a few chapters uh, into Matthew, Matthew 18, of the unforgiving servant who was forgiven this enormous debt by a king that he couldn't even begin to repay in many lifetimes, let alone one. The king forgave him this enormous debt. And if you know the story, what, what did the guy do? He goes out and he finds somebody who owes him just a minuscule amount of money and he shakes the guy down and has him thrown in jail. He was forgiven this great debt, yet wouldn't be someone who was forgiving to somebody who owed him just a minute amount. If you're not merciful, it's probably because you haven't known the mercy of God. And so blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, our society doesn't value purity a whole lot. Our society would value like kind of being wise in the ways of the world. We might call it being street smart. That's what our society values because the pure in heart like they're they're gullible the pure in heart are the ones that get taken advantage of the pure in heart they're the ones who are naive and they don't really understand how the world works but jesus says it's the pure in heart who will see god blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of god again society doesn't value like society might value the peacekeepers right peacekeepers meaning like we're going to show up in another country with full force and we're going to keep the peace there but, but the peacemakers, right, the ones that try to achieve peace, maybe not with full force, right, our society doesn't value that. But Jesus says those are the ones that will be called the sons of God. And then he says maybe the most ironic statement, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Like if you're all of these things, 
and, and the world comes at you because of all of those things, you're blessed because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So when you're persecuted, even unjustly, he says, rejoice and be glad because your reward is great here on earth. No, he doesn't say your reward is great in heaven. Right? We, we forego a reward here on earth looking to something better. And then he reminds us that they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What makes you think it's going to be any different for you? So Solomon has these series of ironic statements that, that don't give us a whole lot of hope. Jesus gives us some hope that at least if we're on God's side, if we're following him, that there's eventually going to be something better. Right? And so we see the irony of God that, that when we live for him, we have this hope that, that maybe doesn't always look like hope, but it's the greatest hope that we can ever imagine. Back to Ecclesiastes in chapter 7, starting in verse 7, we see Solomon talk about the condition of humanity. So surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So it kind of goes through this series of statements uh, that show us the human condition. And so we see this human condition of greed. Surely oppression drives the wise to madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. We're greedy people, right? How much of anything is enough for most of us? Just a little more. I think it was Ted Turner who talked about, I don't, I don't want to own all of the land in Montana. I just want to own the land that touches mine, right? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Solomon, even, even in his day, like that's not new to the human condition. In Solomon's day, he said a bribe corrupts the heart. In other words, he is recognizing the human propensity for greed and the corruption therein. Then he talks about anger. He says, better is the end of a thing than the beginning and the patient in spirit better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. And that should be a hit to all of us who have ever been angry about anything, <laughs> right? We, we all get angry. And, and I think we might be quick to say, well, Jesus, Jesus got angry, right? Remember the scene when he turned over the tables in the temple? Jesus got angry. I can tell you this, that, that Jesus' anger was 100% righteous. Without a doubt. And I can also tell you this probably without a doubt. My, my anger is never righteous. I don't know if it ever has been. I'd like to think that it might be, but I don't know that my anger is ever righteous. And yours probably isn't too. So we, we can't really look at that and say, well, Jesus got angry, therefore I'm justified in my anger over here. You're probably not. If you are, you're a better person than I am. I can tell you that. And Solomon tells us that anger lodges in the heart of fools. It's better that something comes to an end, then we would continue being angry about something that hasn't come to an end yet. He says it's better to be patient in spirit. And here's why, I think. In, in our like, What is it that causes us to get angry? It's when things don't go our way. When, when I want things to go this way and, and it goes that way instead. And in those moments, it's likely that we're just demonstrating a lack of trust in God. 
Right? Is, is it true that God is sovereign over all? In other words, is it, is it true that, that everything that happens everywhere in the universe doesn't happen outside of God's watch? We, we believe that's true. And so if that's true, just, just thinking from a logical standpoint, if that's true, then what about this thing that I'm getting so angry about? Maybe I'm not trusting in God's sovereignty in that moment. Right? There are things that happen in the world that we, like, we should get angry about injustices in the world. Right? There, there's a righteous anger to be had there. But, but even in those things, like I don't know that my anger is, is fully righteous at the injustices of the world. So Solomon reminds us of our anger. Then he goes on to say, don't, don't have this attitude that says, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. And if you're like me, you've probably been asking that or something like that quite a bit in the last few years. Gosh, why, thing, why can't things be like they were 20 years ago? Why couldn't things be the way they were under, you know, insert the name of your favorite president, whoever that might be. Why can't things be like they were under that administration? Why can't things be like they were you know, way back when, when I was growing up. And Solomon says that we ask that question not from wisdom. And I think why he says that again is it just demonstrates, I think, a lack of trust in a sovereign God. Right? There are a lot of things happening in the world that I wish weren't happening in the world right now. There's a lot of things happening in our country that I wish were not happening in our country right now. You probably feel the same way. There's a lot of days where I wish that things were the way they were like like even just a few years ago, let, let alone a long time ago. But here again, like if God is sovereign, if he's the creator of the universe and the controller and the sustainer of the universe, Solomon's saying that maybe that's not the right question to be asking. Maybe, maybe rather than asking that question, it would be the prayer, God, help me to trust you in the midst of just the world looking like it's, it's going in a bad direction. He goes on to say, wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. And, and, and this, is, this is not the wisdom here that we see like wisdom in the Proverbs. Like Proverbs would say that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. I don't think Solomon's talking about this kind of wisdom necessarily here. He's talking about a wisdom that, that allows you maybe to be good with money, right? To, to be able to handle some administrative things in your life with some success. He's talking about this, this kind of wisdom. It's good if you get an inheritance, if you get a large sum of money all of a sudden, it's good to have some wisdom about how money works. It's good to have some wisdom uh, about finances, right? So you can handle that inheritance and not just blow it. If you've ever read, uh, there's articles out there about people who have won large sums of money in the lottery and Almost every time somebody who didn't already have money wins a lottery and wins a lot of money, it almost never turns out good for the person. Almost always, without fail, their life is worse after having won a large sum of money. Because by and large, people don't have wisdom in how to handle those things. He says that the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And I don't, again, think that Solomon is advocating that we all need to have lots of money so we can put our head on the pillow and sleep at night. But, but if you have some wisdom and you have some resources and you know how to manage those, like that's a good skill to have in life for everybody. And he's saying that's, that's a good thing. It's an advantage, he says, and it preserves the life of him who has it. 
Our, our life, as we've already talked about, has an expiration date. It's going to come to an end at some point. Right? So, so we see kind of this finite nature of man that, that at least for the life that you do have, it's, it would be good if you had some wisdom to help you in this life, but that life eventually is going to come to an end. And so we see kind of this depressing human condition of greed and anger and a lack of trust in God and just the finite nature uh, of mankind. The Apostle Paul, I think, paints maybe even a little more bleak of a picture of the human condition than Solomon does. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 28. He says that since they, meaning all of humanity, didn't see fit to acknowledge God, that God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So Solomon gives us this bleak picture of of the the condition of humanity. The Apostle Paul kind of one-ups him and says it's even worse than you're thinking. And and we read this list and and we can just look at our world today and say, "Eh, okay, (laughs) Paul's on to something here, right? there's, There's truth to this statement. And so the, the finite nature of humanity and the sinful nature of humanity we see on display. But as we finish out our couple of verses in Ecclesiastes 7, uh, verses 13 and 14, he says this, Consider the works of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is a big statement that Solomon is making here. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Have you ever thought about that just maybe God has made some crooked things in this world? You ever tried to build anything and it just didn't turn out quite right? And it's because probably because you made a mistake or didn't do something right. God here, according to Solomon, has made some things crooked on purpose. He's made some things crooked on purpose. That's a hard pill to swallow, to think that God would do that. And he says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, in other words, when you're seeing crooked things, consider that God has made one as well as the other. Right? The Bible talks about that, that the sun shines on the just and the unjust, and the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Those things don't compute with us. Right? We want God to obliterate the unjust. Right? We want God to fix all of the things that are wrong in this world. But Solomon reminds us that just maybe God has made one as well as the other. So that in our adversity, so in our looking at the crooked things, that it might cause us to turn to God and say, help. We need help. Finishing up in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Here's the hope, right? We don't have a whole lot of hope if Solomon just ends there and says, well, God has made the good and the bad, right? God has made the straight and the crooked, you know, go live your life. Like, what do you, what do we do with that? We walk out of here with our heads hanging low, just thinking, you know, oh, well, I'm going to go to my job tomorrow and hope that I have a good day. Colossians chapter one reminds us of this truth. He, speaking of Jesus, is the invisible, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul reminds us once again that God is sovereign over all. He's control, controlling everything. He's bigger. He's stronger. He's smarter than any human being. He's the fullness of God. He's preeminent over everything. He can, everything was created for him and by him. He sustains everything and he holds everything together. And if that's not enough, he reminds us that you who were once alienated and hostile, in other words, you who once didn't have a hope, you whose best hope was that maybe I can enjoy my job and live a full life before I die, to you, he says he is now reconciled or made the opportunity of reconciliation available to those who would trust in Christ. So that when that day comes, he could present us holy and blameless and above reproach before the Father if we continue in the faith if we are stable and steadfast, and if we don't shift from the hope of the gospel to a false hope, right? Fill in the blank with whatever you want for a false hope, right? Maybe I'll win the lottery one day. Maybe I'll save for retirement. Maybe I can have a big house. Maybe I can have a fast car. Maybe I can have a big family, right? If we hold fast to the hope of the gospel, that foolish message that Paul earlier said was folly to those who are looking for wisdom, and that we would proclaim that message in all of creation under heaven. right? So, so Solomon doesn't leave us with a lot of hope because he's coming from the perspective of here's what life is without God. right? Jesus and Paul and some of the New Testament writers leave us with some hope to say, here's what life can be if you come to Christ, if you follow him. And so we, we have a greater hope than, than we can even begin to wrap our minds around. And, and we have a hope that, that people out there don't have. And I hope that we would be maybe encouraged and challenged today that we would take that hope to people that don't have it because our world is getting more and more hopeless by the day, maybe even by the moment, right? Our world is getting more and more hopeless, right? I, I have to start reading less news because it just depresses me and it bums. I found myself a couple of weeks ago, I was reading some news and I, just, and I was just getting angry reading the news, I had to set it down and I had to stop for a moment and I had to pray to God, like, help me in this because this is getting the better of me in the moment, just the hopelessness of life apart from God. And so be reminded today of the hope that you have in Christ and be challenged with taking that hope to those who desperately need it. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for today. We're thankful that uh, you are our hope. We're thankful that we can even have any, any sort of hope at all uh, in this world that just seems to be uh, on a trajectory that's, that's 
just not good. And so God, help us uh, first and foremost to be reminded of the hope that we do have uh, and help us to be people that would take hope uh, to those who so desperately need it. Help us uh, to continue to proclaim the foolish message of the gospel, Christ crucified, uh, so that uh, people who don't know you would come to know you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.